maybe this is a silly comparison to make, or maybe it's super profound. But if you think about um, when you get really into a certain game, like a video game, or possibly even you know a game like chess or something like that, it's like I keep losing at this point, but then I keep thinking about it, and it's like, what like if I just could do it a little ring. different this like time? Like, what if I? <laughs> right, right. Like any kind of a Dark Souls game where it's just like the thing that's addictive about it is, no, I, I, I know that if I do this enough, I'll be able to figure it out. So maybe that's like yeah. on a macro level playing out in our lives. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're going to be doing part one of a two-part discussion about unhealthy relationship patterns and what causes us to repeat them. Many of us enter into relationships with similar people over and over again or engage in events that resemble those that we haven't liked in the past or just end up in the same conflicts over and over again. So even if we know that a specific type of a relationship or a specific type of person may be bad for us, we might date them anyway. So today we're going to be exploring why we do this, how it relates to past trauma and attachment theory, and attempt to answer the question, do people really have a type? And then next week we'll be continuing this with some other subjects. Hmm. Yeah, so I wanted to start out of and ask the question, this kind of overarching question that I wanted to answer. And that is, throughout the course of the two of your dating lives, have you ever felt like you've tended to get into relationships with similar people or repeat unhealthy relationship patterns? And why do you think you were compelled to do this? Oh, Emily. I mean, that's a oh. huge can of worms right there, potentially. But, I, I'm but like, yeah. this is literally all of therapy. Yeah, I mean, I get that. I do. <laughs> I, okay, let's see. Off, just off the top of my mind, some similar patterns. I've dated a lot of cancers. Mm. And usually had pretty positive experiences dating cancers. I did have a period in my life where I jumped out of a verbally and emotionally abusive relationship straight into a physically abusive relationship. And so mm -hmm. that was not very fun and definitely gave me some pause to think about like, huh, interesting that I sort of repeated that just back to back a little two for one special of some life lessons for me. Um, and I'm still unpacking what compelled me to do that. Yeah, I got that. How about you, Jace? It's, it's such a it's such a tough question because it's like both funny and also very serious, right? Yes. It's like right on a funny level. It's like, oh, dating cancers or whatever. It's like, you know, okay, I, I tend to, like I've tended to uh, have crushes on a lot of women who turned out to not date men. So like, that's a fun one. <laughs> that's not oh. quite like relationship patterns, but that's a pattern that I had. Interesting. Um, yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, but like thinking about more seriously or serious, but still light, I guess, is I feel like I've gone through kind of 
chunks of, I feel like I've done kind of similar things in relationships for several years of my life. And then I'll kind of move on to a different kind of cycle hmm. or move on to a different, different type of thing. thing you're unpacking and working on. Perhaps. Yeah. So it's not like it's always the same all the time, but that it's maybe gone through some chapters. Yeah. I have another fun one to help balance oh. out my heavy one, which sure. many people know and are intimately familiar with the fact that I've dated like 16 VFX people in a row. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that Approximately. <is> There's just something yeah, about, fun. yeah, I don't know. I guess I just attract that particular type of nerd. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I agree that nerdy, nerdy people tend to be who I date as well. But also I feel like I've dated people who at least I perceive to be accomplished. And I hmm. do wonder if that's trying to feed my own internal perception of this will make me look and feel more accomplished because that's something that I don't always feel about myself. Hmm. And so therefore I try to date people who I think the world will see as accomplished and therefore I will be deemed that or something along those lines. And yeah, and my father was very accomplished, but was not interested in knowing me. And so I do wonder if I'm trying to like fix that a little bit. Gosh. I don't know. That's interesting. It does remind me of, I think I read an article once that talked about how some people and particularly people who are socialized as women who date men or who date heterosexually are more likely to try to like sometimes long for or like seek for someone who, who can't accomplish the things they feel like they can't hmm. or haven't been able to sometimes. Um hmm. Or for yeah, some reason think that they can't. Either that is because of social structure or because of internal beliefs. I don't know. Again, this is this is all kind of speculation, but that's what that makes me think of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something that got me sort of interested in this topic in general was listening to a podcast with a therapist, a, a pretty well-known therapist that has written a few very best-selling books. And they talked about something called repetition compulsion on the podcast. And I was really interested in this idea, but sort of looking into it further with our research assistant, we found that it was initially a Freudian concept and that many of the initial ideas about it are pretty outdated at this point because Freud tended to think like, okay, this is sort of like a heteronormative thing that if you are a woman, you are always trying to find your father as a partner. And if you are a man, you're always trying to find your mother as a partner, something along those lines. And that right. you're repeating that pattern of trying to find, you know, just your mom or your dad and that's it. And and that is a pretty outdated stance for a variety of factors at this point. It's still something that gets thrown around culturally quite yeah. a lot today, yeah. even though psychologists today are, have mostly moved on from the ideas of Freud and refined those much further. Yeah. Well, in this, I, I guess, I mean, it is still talked about. Repetition compulsion is still talked about now, but it's a bit different than that. I think it's mm -hmm. it's getting into things like attachment theory and, you know, looking at past traumas and stuff like that. Not ne Not just necessarily your own opposite sex parent or whatever right i uh, yeah so from there we decided to sort of pivot this this discussion instead to looking at unhealthy relationship patterns in general and asking the question why we tend to repeat those those unhealthy patterns over and over again but just sort of right off the top at the beginning i did want to touch on repetition compulsion very briefly yeah 
And another caveat that we need to give before we dive into this is sometimes I've felt hesitant about this topic because it can very quickly slip into some indirect victim blaming. There can often be this sense of, oh, like you have some kind of unresolved trauma that you're trying to fix by, or you have low self-esteem or low self-worth, or there's something wrong with you essentially. And that's why you keep ending up in these relationships with all these crummy people. And sure, sometimes those things can be informing our decisions about the people that we choose to be in relationships with. And we'll dive into that. But also at the same time, it doesn't mean like, you know, if someone abuses you or is crappy to you, it's not 100% your fault. So just want to get that out uh, right at the gate here. Yeah. So let's start off with the definition. So repetition compulsion, as Emily just said, is defined as in psychoanalytic theory, an unconscious need to reenact early traumas in an attempt to overcome or master them. Such traumas are repeated in a new situation symbolic of the repressed prototype. Repetition compulsion acts as a resistance to therapeutic change since the goal of therapy is not to repeat, but to remember the trauma and to see its relation to present behavior, also called compulsion to repeat. And according to psychiatrist and researcher Bessel van der Kolk, quote, many traumatized people expose themselves seemingly compulsively to situations reminiscent of the original trauma. These behavioral reenactments are rarely consciously understood to be related to early life experiences. That's interesting. And yeah, again, this is more, I think, the the nowadays thought process around this idea of repetition compulsion as opposed to that early Freudian idea of what it was. So just something kind of think about in the back of your head that we're talking about, you know, all of these things and why we're repeating unhealthy patterns. It may be because of your past. It may be because of experiences that happened to you in young adult life or a variety of other reasons. So let's go get into some of those a little bit. We're going to talk about what some examples of unhealthy relationship patterns or behaviors look like. So we talked about toxic relationships all the way back in episode 191. It's been a little while, but yeah, some, yeah. Well, the some, good news, we did that episode and then there's been no more toxic relationships ever since. Oh, never. So. Yeah, no, that's uh, maybe we not fi- quite we true. We fixed it. <laughs> we exactly. Fixed it, yeah. That was easy. <laughs> so some of these examples come from that episode, but there are, you know, updated examples as well. So here's a list of some of the patterns that might be unhealthy in a relationship. And these come from our own examples and then also a variety of articles on the subject. So you may feel a lack of safety in the relationship, emotionally or physically. You may have unhealthy communication patterns between yourself and your partner or partners. You may feel neglect from your partner, or on the flip side of that, you may feel an over-dependency, like you really depend on your partner and that could be an unhealthy pattern. You also might feel a loss of sense of self. And you may feel an unwillingness to make compromises, you or your partner. You may have that sensation of walking on eggshells. So feeling like you can't really relax around a partner or, or you're in a situation that's very high octane or very reactive, which may lead you to feel drained about the relationship. There may be several instances of what the Gottmans called four horsemen of the apocalypse behaviors. So those are criticism, defensiveness or blame, stonewalling or contempt, and those may become the norm in the relationship. 
you may feel a lack of empathy, or you may not feel like you and your partner on the same team are able to empathize or listen to each other. Similarly, you might find a lack of validation. Validation neither for just who you are or for your feelings or anything like that. Uh, emotional distance from your partner. You know, Emily mentioned over-dependency and neglect. It could also just be that withdrawing that happens. Uh, feeling controlled or manipulated or finding that you are being controlling or manipulating, even if you don't intend to going in. Uh, and then just unhealthy power dynamics or hierarchies in place that are not, you know, not something that's fun and pre-negotiated, but something that's happening unintentionally or unwillingly. So of this list, some of these things sound like they may tie pretty closely to attachment theory, which we're going to get into later on in this episode. But the bad relationship patterns and behaviors don't only come from our family of origin. You know, so what are some other reasons why we might have a tendency to re-expose ourselves, as, as it said in that definition, to re-expose ourselves to some of these unhealthy relationship dynamics over and over again? Well, that leads us to that big old million dollar question of, do we have a type, quote unquote, a type? I feel like nowadays, something that's floating around in the culture is usually hearing from a lot of straight women complaining about like, oh gosh, yeah, my type is emotionally unavailable mm -hmm. men. Totally. And yeah, it's like that yeah, is very so ubiquitous course. that I think it starts to speak to more of maybe some bigger social trauma and socialization cues that we have because that's such a universal experience for so many people that it probably goes beyond just like your own attachment or your own individual trauma. But that's something that I see floating around quite a bit. Um, and so the thing is that whether we like it or not, there are studies that suggest the idea that most of us do have a type of a person that we like to date. And to clarify, this may sound like what we were talking about back in episode 366, you know, the idea that, oh, we have preferences, you know, and that led to our whole big discussion about desirability politics. But we need to clarify that when we're talking about type here, we're specifically discussing personality characteristics as opposed to physical characteristics. So there was a study that really tried to answer this question and look at this whole, do we have a type or not? Uh, so there was a study done in 2019, but actually it was done over a nine-year period. So it was published in 2019 called The Consistency Between Individuals Past and Current Romantic Partners Own Reports of Their Personalities. This was done by G. McDonald and Y. Park. And it was a 2019 longitudinal study done over a nine-year period. They used data from 332 participants. It was 159 men and 173 women who had self-reports of personality available from two different partners during the study period. So basically, it was like a current partner that they were still with and then one ex-partner over this period of time. On average, these people were around 25 years old. It always tends to be... Yeah. Young people, younger. Yeah. yes, yep. uh, and the participants had been with a partner for generally around a little under four years on average, and 80% of the past relationships had been non-marital, and 31% of the non-married participants were cohabiting. And they looked at what these people called, and I guess this is a thing in psychology, the big mm -hmm. five personality traits. Yeah. Yep. And for those of you who don't know, it includes extroversion, 
conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, and openness. So they were essentially looking at all of those factors within this nine-year period. So that's all uh, pretty complicated, but to kind of sum up, basically, over this nine-year period, they were able to get personality surveys from the people that the participants were dating. And, you know, over time, some of those became exes and they dated new people. And using these big five personality traits, which are pretty commonly, you know, well-studied sort of uh, like universal personality traits rather than just situational. These tend to be more like an actual trait that that person has for most of their life. They were able to compare those between those two partners, you know, the one that became an ex and the one that's the current partner, and then did some fancy maths comparing them to the person they were dating to help determine how similar or different those two people were from each other. So interestingly, in the text of the study, they mentioned the fact that after a person experiences a breakup, they generally believe that they're going to be better equipped to understand what they want and what they need out of the next relationship, which I totally get. We've all been there. I think we all internalize that sense of, oh gosh, well, that was a mistake, maybe. Or, well, I'm not going to make those same mistakes again, or I'm not going to date a person like that again. I guess I've learned that lesson. I know that's definitely something I'm going through right now. But despite that, they reference the fact that other studies have found that So at the same time as we think, okay, I've learned my lesson and then the next time it's going to be different, I'm going to find someone different. People will describe an ideal partner's personality traits pretty consistently over time. So they find that over the course of people's lives, what they want in a partner as far as personality goes doesn't tend to change. And then this study found when they compared those, you know, self-reports of personality between a person's current partner and their former partner, they found that people ended up being with people who were similar to each other and more similar than, you know, than the chances of if you picked up like two random people off the street, how similar they might be to each other. So Mm, it was like distinctively similar, not just by chance. Um, And I'm going to directly quote the study here. The present findings provide evidence that people's new partners tend to have a degree of similarity to their previous partners, suggesting that people consistently engage in relationships with a particular type of person to at least some extent. This appears to be less true of individuals high in extroversion or openness to experience, although these conclusions remain tentative. So it sounds like there's maybe some wiggle room depending on your personality, but that if we're looking at trends, chances are high that you're going to be with someone who is has similar personality to people that you've been with previously. And I'd say that's generally true. No, it doesn't I, I don't surprise like it to me, be true. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I'm such a don't you put me in a box. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, science. It's, so when I was talking about those fancy maths that they were doing to determine the degree of similarity, one of the things that they mentioned having to account for is this well-established thing called assortative mating, which mm-hmm. I hadn't heard that term for it before. What is that? But, basically means you're more likely to date people similar to yourself. Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And so what they had to do was some fancy maths to be like, we want to be sure that we're saying these two people are similar to each other, to each other, not just because they're similar to the person they both dated, because there's going to be a certain degree of similarity there. So we're kind of canceling that out to try to make sure that there's actually similarities beyond just that between them. Because otherwise you might get a false positive and say, oh, they're all similar, but that's just because they're similar to the person they dated. So even beyond that, there is this pretty significant degree of similarity between them, 
I'm really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not, that was not the point of this whole thing. No, 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 no. It's, it's not bad. I'm just, I'm just examining what's coming up in this moment, thinking about my whole life. Yeah. I do. I mean, it kind of like our discussion on preference and desirability politics. This is a little similar in just the idea that, okay, we, I guess, as people do tend to repeat, do tend to repeat the same types of people that we're interested in, the same types of people that we date, personality or physical or a bunch of things. And that, I think, is just really interesting to examine and to question why, because probably so many of us go through life never questioning that and never really like thinking very critically about why it is that we're doing the things that we do. And so, you know, studies like this, and I think conversations like this are great just because it's important for us to get to the bottom of things like that. And if it's not serving us to maybe change that, yeah, Dedeker, your reaction to this is bringing up some memories of something that really struck me uh, when I was in college and was taking psychology courses and was talking to a friend of mine. At the time, we were talking about cognitive dissonance and mm. how that can affect us to to develop opinions about things that we might not have had if it hadn't been for this dissonance kind of affecting the way that we remember an event or affecting our opinion about something. And... I remember being so shocked at how angry my friend got about me just talking about this stuff that I'd been learning. Wow. That, that to him, it's kind of like Dedeker said, it's like, I don't want to be put in a box. He was so upset by this idea that he's not in control of his thoughts or that there's these psychological factors affecting him that he doesn't have direct control over. And it's something I've thought about a lot in, in the years since then um, of of kind of what's going on there. And yeah, there's a lot of, it's freaky to think, oh, I'm being put in this box or I don't have control. But the the analogy that I ended up coming up with in talking to this friend was kind of thinking about it more like learning about gravity, where it's like, okay, I've, I've learned about how the physics of gravity works. And it's like, gosh, now I'm put in this box that I can't fly or hover or something or grow taller or, you know, whatever, right? Something like that. But by knowing about it and understanding it better, I'm now able to work with it or manipulate it to better accomplish what I want, right? Like being able to make airplanes or lighter than aircraft, all things that rely on gravity, right? So kind of that idea of learning these things can help you to overcome them or to change them or to influence them rather than if you don't know about them and put your head in the sand, you're more likely to keep repeating these things or have less control. So it's kind of this no. interesting, ironic thing. You're right. I should probably think about this and break against type and date an airplane next. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting. Or maybe like an astrophysicist. break the chain of, of VFX nerds. There you yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Oh, no, yeah. Jason, I've already dated an astrophysicist. Or sorry, not an astrophysicist, wow. an aerospace Oh engineer. yeah, I've already I been there. That's the closest did. I've been to dating a airplane. An airplane. I don't think you do remember that person. I don't think you ever met them. <laughs> oh, this is before I, I met I you, met... Emily. Oh, okay. I thought that I like maybe not. Maybe there you just heard somewhere. tales of the aerospace. Yeah, maybe engineer. tales. It's fine. All right. Well, we're going to move on from there and talk about why we want to date the same people over and over again. You know, things like attachment theory, and then also. 
move on to a little teaser for the next part of this episode. But before we do that, we wanted to talk about some of the ways that you can support this show and make sure that it continues to go to all y'all out there for free. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Now, in the second half, let's dive more into this question of, well, okay, we've established that there seems to be some research backing up the idea that we date people with similar personality types, even if we think we're not going to. But why might we be doing that? And especially why might we be doing this if they're bad for us, or at least not the best for us, or we're getting into habitual patterns. So we're going to go through some concepts here. These are a combination of things from a few different articles. Um, for example, one from Psych Central, Why Do We Repeat the Same Dysfunctional Relationship Patterns? Another one from Psychology Today, Why Do We Repeat Ourselves? Or Why Do We Repeat the Past in Our Relationships? You'll notice that title. There's a gazillion articles with a pretty similar variation on those People terms in the title. questioning and wondering those <laughs> yeah. and seeking answers. Exactly. So, so let's, let's look at some of these, you know, answers that various people have come up with for why do we repeat these destructive patterns? So the first one just right off is that we repeat what's familiar. It's like, well, maybe I don't like this, but I know it mm. or I'm used to it. Or maybe even all those little, safe. right. Like the little things leading up to it. At least I know these they're comfortable. And so when I'm not actively thinking about doing something different, that's what I'm going to fall back to just because I know it. It's familiar. And then to add on to that, a lot of it is repeating what we learned as children, whether that's what we learned about how you show affection or what relationships even look like or how we communicate in our relationships. Again, just because it's what we know. This goes a little bit back to the idea of repetition compulsion, but we may repeat what was traumatizing in an unconscious effort to gain mastery over it. That's an interesting idea for sure. And I think, yeah, it's something that I feel like if I if I scale back and look at my life in various ways and like, why did I do that again? And why did I self-sabotage here and stuff like that? It's It's sort of hoping for a different outcome in some way, even though perhaps you're not capable of producing a different outcome, you may unconsciously hope that you are. Yeah. And, and that this is a thing, of course, not everyone who's traumatized does this. And depending on what yes. type of trauma you have, that can change the way that you respond to it. But I know that that is something that's talked about a lot in these circles is this idea that we want to complete the thing we didn't get to complete sometimes, you know, like mm -hmm. whether that was like getting to safety or being able to 
speak up for ourselves at a time that we should have yeah, or being Brian able to talk get... about that. Yeah, definitely. And so that's why I think we do see often again, yeah, that compulsion or that impulse to sometimes to relive or sometimes to repeat or sometimes it is just that like trying to complete it, trying to complete the story in a better way sometimes. And sometimes we can be very conscious of that. And sometimes we can be very, very unconscious of that as well. I think, you know, maybe this is a silly comparison to make, or maybe it's super profound. But if you think about um, when you get really into a certain game, like a video game, or possibly even, you know, a game like chess or something like that, it's like, I keep losing at this point. But then I keep thinking about it. And it's like, like what if I just could Elden do it a little Ring. different this like time? Like, what if I, <laughs> right, right. Like any kind of a Dark Souls game where it's just like the thing that's addictive about it is, no, I, I, I know that if I do this enough, I'll be able to figure it out. So maybe that's like yeah. on a macro level playing out in our lives. We may think that we deserve to suffer. And again, we don't want to say that this is a victim blaming thing, but sometimes internally, and I've definitely been there, we may feel like, hey, I, I deserve this thing that's happening to me, or I've done something bad in the past, or, you know, my upbringing or whatever causes me to feel as though these things that are happening that are shitty, it, it, it's supposed to happen, or I, it des deserves to happen to me. There are certain values in our culture that really encourage that. I, mm. I mean, I think there's a lot of capitalist culture, for instance, that really makes us internalize that like work should be a freaking bummer. Yeah. Basically, and there's no way out of it. Like we should be kind of suffering through our days with our work. Um, and I think that there's a lot of pretty toxic traditional dating culture that also encourages us to think that relationships are good and then they become a slog and then you just have to suffer through them for as long as you can stand it. And yeah, yeah that we've mentioned us. this many times before, but like on every sitcom ever, that's the plot, right? It's just relationships are not fun. They're, you know, you're kind of resentful of each other. You're, yeah. you're jabbing at each other all the time. It's like, that's what that's we see. That's such a sitcom what, okay, trope. Yeah, yeah. Right? It, it's, it's gotten boring, but, yeah. but it's still there. So we've talked about this a lot in the podcast, but change is very scary. Even when it's healthy, even when it's the best thing for us, it may feel foreign and scary. And we may truly just not even want to go there because it's not something that we're used to. And it may feel much safer to go back to the things that aren't good for us, but it feels safe and like something that we know. Yeah. And again, there are like so many factors involved here that go beyond just your willful conscious decision making, you know, if you suffered abuse or neglect or some kind of trauma as a child, that there can literally be neural pathways for that pattern of being in a relationship or for that pattern of receiving affection or not that is just strengthened and your brain gets accustomed to that. And so then when there's a relationship with a similar pattern, you don't even realize because it just feels so normal or maybe just feels so familiar. And there's also research out there to suggest that, you know, if you've been traumatized or if you're a victim of intimate partner violence, those tend to be indicators that you may enter into another traumatic or violent relationship again. So there's a lot of factors that go into that. And to talk about the change bit, like this is actually a topic request we got from another listener that I want to do sometime. But talking about if you have a history of being a victim of violence or of just being in bad relationships doesn't even necessarily have to be abuse. 
how do you how do you be in an actual good healthy relationship mm. because that can be the other side of it is sometimes really healthy behaviors from a partner can be very destabilizing and anxiety producing if it's not what you're used to or expecting so that may be a future episode yeah that's a really interesting topic and it kind of gets into this concept we've talked about a long time ago and haven't revisited in a while but the idea of like safe people and that sometimes a safe person isn't always just like a nice, happy, friendly person all the time. And mm. that sometimes we can mix those up and that we'll feel like, oh, this is bad because it doesn't feel good all the time when it actually might be healthier behavior. And it's a tricky thing to learn both for ourselves and to recognize that in partners or friends or coworkers or whoever. So, yeah, that could be an interesting topic to get into. For sure. All right, so let's go back to attachment theory because as we said before, a lot of this has ties to attachment theory and we love to talk about that on the show. And I think it's a, it's a pretty hot thing right now for sure. So in terms of attachment style, it may be interesting to view your relationship habits, good or bad, through a lens of whatever specific attachment style you tend to have. Now, attachment styles aren't, you know, end all be all, one and done. You're this and that's it. Many of them may ebb and flow and change based on what partner you're with. You may be kind of two at once or a few of them at once, or you may really default to one. But for the purposes of this, we sort of took each of our specific attachment styles. <laughs> Jace, I like how you were like, I'm secure attachment. <laughs> And also secure attachment. So yeah, let's <laughs> let's talk about each of these. Yeah. So just for a quick run through, um, I do want to give a quick callback to our episode that we did with Jessica Fern back in episode 291, where we were speaking with Jessica about her book, Polysecure. We go much more in depth about attachment theory and about attachment styles and how that intersects with non-monogamy. So again, you can go listen to that at episode 291. But just for a quick primer, talking about attachment styles, which has a lot of overlap, I think, with our ideas that we've explored so far about repetition compulsion, because it essentially does have this seed in what happened to you as a child or how you yeah. got love and affection as a child, and then sometimes repeating those coping mechanisms in your adult relationships as well. So for example, when we're talking about avoidant attachment, it could be a situation where your caregivers maybe weren't around, maybe weren't very responsive to your needs. And so therefore you're instilled with this idea that I can only truly rely on myself. I have to be independent. And so that means that there can be a repetition of an unhealthy relationship pattern where you distance yourself from partners. Or maybe if someone gets close to you, you very intentionally choose to pull away, push them away. You know, maybe you choose to never really fully connect or engage with someone in a meaningful way because of sort of repeating that pattern. For all y'all out there who are on the anxious attachment side of things, maybe a family member or somebody who is super close to you in your life perhaps abandoned you when you were young or just wasn't around very much. And so as a result, in your adult relationships, you may constantly seek reassurance from your partner in a more obsessive manner, or you may exhibit other types of insecure behavior. And that may be an unhealthy relationship pattern that you get into over and over again. And you also may feel like your partner and your relationship with them directly ties into your own feelings of self-worth that uh, am I a good person because I'm with someone because I'm with this person 
am I a valued human in this world? Am I a valued member of society? Because I have a partner or multiple partners, things like that, that may tie into an unhealthy relationship pattern as well. In a secure attachment style, generally you can retain feelings of autonomy from your partner while also being able to connect to them, having their back, knowing that they have yours, and that your relationships can have a sense of overall security and those feelings can get carried over from one relationship to the next. A quick thing I want to say before moving on from this, though, is that with attachment styles, as Emily mentioned, they can change a little bit, but they can also fluctuate a little bit by relationship. So you might feel yeah. a little more secure in one type of relationship, but then veer more toward one of the others in another one. So just just something to be aware of with all of these. You might be like, oh, I've done that, but I've also done that. I've also done mm -hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that can happen, too. And just to add some more complication to it, there's also disorganized attachment, which involves sometimes bouncing back and forth. It's it's often described as gas and break, sometimes gas and break at the same time. But, you know, bouncing between needing an, some amount of reassurance and intimacy from a partner to then pushing the partner away. Um, this is a less common form of attachment, but it's definitely disorienting for everyone involved. So we just wanted to do that really quick primer on attachment theory because this is yet another way to bring awareness to these relationship patterns and to be curious about what's repeating. And something that we hit on quite a bit in the Jessica Fern episode was talking about the fact that your attachment style, identifying it or even identifying a pattern isn't a get out of jail free card. It doesn't mean like, oh, okay, this thing happened to me as a child or, oh, I was in this abusive relationship. Okay, so that's why I get to do whatever I want or I can act out or I can be really crappy to the people that I'm with. It's, it doesn't mean you're just off scot-free now. It enables you to ask the questions to shine a light on it and to be able to find ways to work through these patterns and release some of these patterns if they're not working out for you. All righty. Well, that was a scintillating conversation and we're not done yet. Next week, we're going to do an additional conversation, part two of repeating unhealthy relationship patterns. We're going to discuss some specific types of unhealthy relationship patterns. We found like a fun article that kind of breaks down sort of normal like relationship patterns and sort of what we fall into as humans. Also, how unhealthy relationship patterns can be really challenging in non-monogamous relationships. And we're going to hit you with some actionable takeaways for you to work towards changing those toxic behaviors. So our question of the week for our Instagram stories is, do you have a type, quote unquote, when it comes to pers the personality of someone that you want to date? VFX artists? Uh, cancer. I don't think that counts walkers. as a personality type. Oh my it's goodness. It's not. It totally isn't. It's just funny that y'all like said that. So I'm I'm making fun of you. But yes. I don't know. Having worked in VFX, I don't know. I could argue it's a personality type. It's a type. type. It's a type. <laughs> yeah. VFX or yeah, any uh, maybe uh, animation or stuff like that. <laughs> Similar types of people, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> Alrighty, so the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can post on our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. 
Multi-Amory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedek Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanetta. This episode was researched by M. Mays. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Onamd from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.